Reducing Crime features influential thinkers in the police service and leading crime and policing researchers. Scott Charles is the Trauma Outreach Manager for Philadelphia's Temple University Hospital. We chat about what led him to hospital-based violence intervention programs and what he has learned from years of bedside conversations with gunshot survivors. Welcome to Reducing Crime. I'm Jerry Ratcliffe. Have you ever wondered what it's like to be shot? As Trauma Outreach Manager for Philadelphia's Temple University Hospital, Scott Charles has had thousands of conversations with gunshot survivors. He coordinates the hospital's Trauma Victims Support Advocates Program, which connects violently injured patients to victim services throughout the city, often starting with conversations that take place at the bedside in the emergency room. He's also director of the hospital-based violence intervention program Cradle to Grave, an initiative that educates public school students and adjudicated youth about the physical, emotional and social realities of firearm injury. Since 2006, more than 13,000 young people have participated in this unique award-winning program. Last September, the Council on Criminal Justice, while calling for more evaluation, highlighted four promising community-based responses to rising violent crime. Cognitive behavioural therapy, environmental improvements, outreach by credible messengers, and HVIPs, that's hospital-based violence intervention programmes. What I like about HVIPs is they tend to be closely targeted to those at the highest risk for repeat injury. As the Council on Criminal Justice noted, hospital-based programmes aim to intervene during crucial, teachable moments of an individual's recovery from a shooting, leveraging the trust and goodwill afforded caregivers. Our chat mainly covers two of Scott's many programmes, the education programme Cradle to Grave and the work of his trauma advocates. But before we got into the important work he and his colleagues are doing, we were generally chatting about crime in Philadelphia. The city has just had the most violent year in living memory, with its 1.5 million residents witnessing a staggering 562 homicides and over 2,300 shootings. We were discussing the limitations of various strategies, and you join us mid-conversation as I'm trying to make some contorted analogy that policing is like malaria medicine. Years ago, I spent three months trekking through the mountains and the rainforest in Borneo, and like an idiot, eventually I caught malaria. Oh, Jesus. And I used to carry quinine sulfate with me because every now and again, I would get a recurrence of malaria because mm, mm-hmm. it's a parasite that grows yeah. in your liver and then infects your system. Yeah. And you can take quinine sulfate and that makes it go away. Doesn't cure sure. you of malaria yeah, yeah. because it's still in the parasite, still in your liver. Quinine sulfate is policing. It works really well in the short term, but I needed some other therapy, a long-term therapy to eventually eradicate the malaria that, uh, you know, I had three, four occurrences of it. The analogy would be though, if that particular medication lost its potency with every subsequent dosage, right? Because the question is, where are we with policing? And has the fact that we kept returning to it without it actually curing the disease cause it to be less effective. And, and I think that what is happening where we are is the community has essentially said, wait a minute, this hasn't been working and you're trying to prescribe more of this shit. And I think finally the police are also saying like, well, wait, wait a minute, we had goodwill for all this time. What's, what's going on here? Right. To come back to the analogy is, is it less effective over time? But I also think that policing is the medication is only effective in a certain number of cases. Right. 
Right. And that's the part where policing can be beneficial, but we're just doing a terrible job of bringing all these other right. different types of right. treatment in. Right. Yeah, we're too dependent on this thing. There's just one piece of the puzzle. Well, now we're not dependent on it at all. Well, right, There's but, but no it gets a lion's share of the attention, right? And whether it's police aren't doing it right or police are doing it wrong, it's getting all the attention. Well, if only we let police do their job, the violence would go away. No, it wouldn't. It might diminish. Right. But it's not going to go away because desperate people are going to do desperate things. We have to make people less desperate and more hopeful. But in the short term, we can also do a, some bits and pieces that Absolutely. stop more people getting shot. Stand I would love by, to make you right. unemployed. Do you right. know what I mean? I'd right. like to make me right. unemployed. Right. <laughs> um, so, you know, I think that we have to, to your point, we have to start addressing the elephant in the room because as time goes on, this, thing's, this thing gets worse and worse to the point that it's at such a scale, we just won't have the capacity to address it. And it's starting to feel like this is where we are now, I think, because we don't even know where to begin, right? right. I'm sure there's some, some analogy about how do you eat an elephant or something one bite at a time, but it, does, it really seems so gigantic that it, it just seems impossible to even know where to begin taking that bite. The analogy of eating an elephant one bite at a time works right until the point you figure out that the elephant continues to grow. Yeah. Right. You know, and if you're not eating it as fast as it's grown, it's just getting bigger and right, bigger. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's the challenge with where we are is looking at who we're turning to for solutions. And it's oftentimes, I don't know if it's just simply comfort or familiarity or laziness that we turn to the usual suspects. You know, how many times have you and I or kind of the same people who've been holding those spaces for forever? So. Honestly, this whole change where nobody's interested in policing solutions mm -hmm. right now mm -hmm. has freed up my calendar. Like, oh, really? Journalists don't call me anymore. I just finished the first draft of a book on the basis of the fact that I am doing so much less. People are just not interested in policing solutions, that kind of stuff. Nobody's contacting me. And if they're listening to this, please fucking don't. I've had so much <laughs> more, I got so much more free time in my life. Because we're looking at things from a public health yeah. situation so much more. And so they're coming yeah. to you guys more. Well, and I don't mind that, but I don't think it's the only answer either. I, I think it's a combination and trying to get all of the people into the room. Because what I'm seeing now, and I don't know how much of it is being in my mid-50s versus being in my mid-30s when I first started working out here, but it feels a lot different. And I don't know these kids in the way that I probably felt I did when I was closer to 30. Right. And I know some of it is just maturation on my part. I wish I was maturing. I'm the same age as you. <laughs> I don't feel like I've matured anything no, since I was but, about 28. But but I'm the guy, you know, I, I'm the guy who has kids that are 17 and 21 and I feel like I don't understand anything that they do. And by extension, I don't understand their age mates who are carrying guns and engaged in this stuff. I think one of the things that blew me away, like in the last couple years, was the sharp increase in violence. And I remember thinking that this is probably hardening a lot of the hard cases that were out there, particularly the guys who had been engaged in this life for a long time. And I remember having conversations with some of them at the bedside. And I would say, you know, what's, what's, what's going on out there? And they'd be like, shit, if I know, man. They, you know, for them, yeah. they were recognizing, you know, particularly guys that were in their 30s, they were recognizing that there was this generational shift that's happening. And I remember hearing kind of whispers you know, I'd go to Graterford Prison and, and talk to some of the guys doing life up there. 
And they would tell me that these guys scared the hell out of them. Right, because it, it's not just the unpredictable and the unnecessariness of some of the shootings, but just the ferocity of yeah. it. So many more rounds being fired. It's not like you're going to take a round or two. I'm, yeah. Now you're getting the whole clip. Right. But I think that this speaks to this issue of what happens over time, right? You know, does the medicine become less potent or, or worse? You know, does it become counterproductive? While we were cracking down in some cases very effectively, we were also getting people caught up in the system that probably had no business being in the system. We incarcerate more people than any other country, and that includes and that, yeah, yeah, and that includes China. Yeah, it's not like they're all lovey huggy. But I, think, so, but, but I think one of the consequences is that you remove the people that kind of held down the social norms, that established the cultural mores, that said this is what passes, this is what doesn't pass. We don't shoot women. We don't shoot children. Right. We don't shoot the elderly. We try to avoid harming civilians. And when we took those folks out of the neighborhood, what we left behind amounted to the Lord of the Flies, a bunch of young people abandoned on these asphalt islands right. who were creating their own social norms. And without the wisdom, without the benefit of history. And also without the maturity yeah. to see that escalation isn't going to end well for anybody. Yeah, that's all that was left behind. You, hadn't, you didn't really have the old heads who were mediating, right? right? And now we're outsourcing, right? We're getting old heads that are coming home. We use this term so much now, but the credible messengers, and we hire them to take the place of the guys that we remove from the street. The irony is we should have just kept those guys there, right, yeah. paid them you know, help them find jobs and they could have stayed there without having to import that import wisdom. Yeah. old heads, which yeah. is the weirdest yeah. thing, right? Yeah. And that brings me to the reason I wanted to, to speak to you. September, the Council on Criminal Justice posted, I think in September, an update with a number of what they call promising strategies, community strategies, cognitive behavioral therapy, there was environmental improvements, there was credible messenger programs, mm -hmm. which you just talked about. And then there's your area of expertise, which is hospital-based violence intervention programs. Yeah, there's been a number of evaluations that show this is really promising because the people going through the programs have better outcomes. Mm. But you're not from Philly originally. No. Born and raised in Sacramento, California. So how did you end up here? I mean, you've been here how many years now? Oh, more than 20. I, I want to say 23, 24 years. Yeah, about the same in, for me. Philly, 20, yeah. 21 years for me, yeah. Yeah, I took a circuitous route. You know, I was a, a kid who got in some trouble. Not Nothing too big, but, you know, grew up in a neighborhood where everybody got in trouble. Predominantly Mexican. Where was this? Grew up in a part of Sacramento that was called Gardenland. We had a, a gang in, in Gardenland that was well known statewide as being one of the most violent gangs in, in the entire state. And that was the environment that I grew up in. Was doing some work in LA, met my future wife, and she ended up taking her first academic job at Ohio State. And that took me out of California. And I it was the terrible student. You know, I, I <laughs> joked that I was working on my GED when she was working on her PhD. But I applied myself at Ohio State, said, oh, I think I, I might be able to write a little bit. I, I kind of got the hang of this thing. But it was all based on hustle. You know, and I think about that all the time when I think about these kids. It's, just, that, it's that, hustle. That's the whole of academia yeah, right yeah. there, right? Yeah, it's just yeah. hustle. You learn the language, you learn the tricks, yeah. and it just becomes a kind of bullshit yeah. hustle. Yeah. Well, and then part of it was that when I got there, I realized that because they were so interested in her work and recruiting her there, that they found people that were willing to keep me happy in terms of making sure that I was thriving in, in the school. Because if I wasn't happy, she probably wouldn't be happy. And somebody actually walked with me to register for classes back in the day when you had to go around and register for classes. But isn't that amazing? I mean, education has always seen the pathway out of so much in America. Yeah. But then you, where you actually hold their hand and take them to get them to registered and get them through. It's amazing what people can achieve. 
Jerry, it's all, it made all the difference. Right. It, it really did. It, it made all the difference. And I, I tell kids all the time that I meet here who've been shy. We give a shit about you. Yeah, and, but there's lost. no difference between us. You know, there really is no difference between us. I was talking to a, a young man years ago, and I was going to go travel overseas. And I said, you know, I'll be back. I'm going to go to Germany. Have you ever been over to Europe? And he said, nah, dog. I, the only time I've been on a plane was Con Air when they were transporting me from one federal p- facility to the next. And I remember telling him, man, you know, there's nothing different between us, really, other than I had somebody hold my hand, somebody pull me out, right? Yeah. So long story short, my wife was recruited at the University of Pennsylvania, and I came out to Penn. And I remember when we, they were recruiting her, I said to one of her colleagues, like, I'm hoping I can find some opportunity working with at-risk kids here. And everybody around the dinner table kind of laughed and said, I think you'll be okay. Yeah. I, think you'll, I think you'll find some opportunity here. Yeah. There's like one or two in Philly. Yeah, there's I a mean, couple. If you work hard, you can if, find them. They're if, out there. Those kids. If, you, if you cruise around and, and stare hard enough, you might be able to find one of those kids. And I was doing a project on violence. What ends up happening is I'm working on this project with these kids. The kids ask the question, you know, why isn't there a greater sense of outrage about the children who had been murdered? You probably remember a kid by the name of Fahim Thomas Childs, yes. who was shot on his way to Thomas Pierce Elementary School. That's a long time ago, but that was two guys going at it back and forth at like nine of, o'clock in the a, morning, it was a few, just like it was dropping a few, 60, 70 rounds yeah. in the street in a yeah, few seconds. Yeah, they found nine, more than 90 rounds of That's ammunition. There were two, one. two groups of combatants, two well-known brothers, and, and That's it. a few other guys. And when they saw the guys across the street waiting for them, their kids were out of the car and in, going into the school. But rather than pulling off, they grabbed the guns out of the center console and, and walked across the street and just began this gunfight in front of the school, elementary school. And this 10 or 11-year-old boy is, is shot. And then that, for me, really did it. But for these kids as well, these kids wanted to know why there wasn't a greater sense of outrage. And I, and I asked them, well, why, why do you think that is? And they said, just nobody knows their story. So we went to Temple. Somebody put me in contact with this doc named Amy Goldberg. I had this phone call with her, and I just thought, this lady's crazy. Yeah. But she is. She's just, like, intense. Uh, on the other end, I just thought, like, I, don't, I can't meet that energy. You ever meet somebody like that yeah, where you're like... Yeah, it's just... simultaneously exhausting and humbling. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But she's already talking about how she's been thinking about this for years. So we bring the kids in. They're blown away by what they're experiencing. She's walking us through the experiences of being a surgeon at a hospital that treats the most gunshot victims of any hospital in the entire state. And the kids, though, in turn started asking her questions. What is it like to walk into a room and tell a, a family that right. their son has died? And so, you know, she's blown away. And so she recognized that there may be an opportunity for us to have this exchange of ideas and experiences that might be mutually beneficial. And she would call me at 11 o'clock at night, midnight on a Friday or Saturday night. And my wife is like, who's this lady calling you in the yeah, middle of the night? Been... Like, really? And I said, this oh, some crazy white lady. Le- legit question. <laughs> legit question. I said, oh, this crazy white lady wants me to come work for her. You're leaning over in the bed having this conversation with another woman. Yeah, that's going to go well. Yeah. Credit really, to your wife for understanding. Yeah, right? no, I mean, really, I, it, I tell Dr. Goldberg all the time that the only reason I took this job is to save my marriage. You know? <laughs> I joined her and we began running these programs. And the program that we started with Cradle to Grave was always kind of characterized as a scared straight program by those who hadn't seen the program because they really didn't have any other point of reference for bringing kids into a place that is no place you'd want a kid to go and then talking to them about the realities of that place. The difference is we didn't threaten to rape kids or, you know, gouge their eyes out or trade them for a pack of cigarettes. We simply had quiet conversations about what it was like. You know, when it comes to the work that you're hearing about now in terms of hospital-based violence intervention programs, HVIPs, mm-hmm. 
we're doing that too. And it's a much more nuanced approach to the, the work that we're doing. And really it's a shift in the way we're thinking about the work that hospitals do. You know, we recognize that it's one thing to announce that you treat the most shooting victims of any uh, hospital in the Commonwealth. Well, you also have real success with it. I mean, the su su survival rate's like north of 80%, isn't it? Yeah, but that's, but that's the way it is in the city. And, and, you know, to go back to policing, one of the unique things, and, and I'm telling you something that you already know, but I think a lot of people who don't live in Philadelphia don't appreciate it, is that if it, the police have a lot to contribute when it comes to our, the survival rate of our shooting victims because of scoop and run. For Not waiting for the paramedics, but yeah. just putting people in the back of a police car and getting them to the hospital. And this is something that Philly has been doing for decades, but it became standardized years ago to the point where we're surprised, I think, when we see medics pulling up with a, a gunshot patient. But a lot of it just has to do with the amount of practice that our surgeons get. Yeah. So even though they were getting really good at saving lives, it was kind of the part after that. You're like, what are we doing for these guys? If we patch them up and after two weeks in the hospital, we send them right back home and nothing about their situation has changed, we're probably going to see them again or we're going to see somebody that they're beefing with. And so trying to interrupt that cycle of violence was important. And the thing about hospital-based violence intervention programs or HVIPs is the fact that we recognize early on too that there's this window of opportunity. You know, we, everybody started calling it the golden hours because there's this reference to golden hours when it comes to the physiologic trauma. Right. I was doing fieldwork yesterday with the transit police. Mm -hmm. They've got a team there who try and help the vulnerable, marginalized community that essentially hang around in the, the transit system, find shelter or find treatment. And they talk about that microsecond yeah. when you've got to get people just at the right point, almost at the kind of lowest, but they're still open to the possibility of seeing a way out. They end up having multiple contacts with people over days or weeks or months. And they're just trying to find, is today the day when the message is going to get through and I can get you out of here and into right. something else? What is it about the hospital environment when they're close to death physiologically that you think is that kind of moment? So I think what it is, man, is that we do a really good job of suppressing the potential for dying. I remember a colleague asked me years ago, why is it that the families flip out when you announce that their son has died? You know, they live in a neighborhood where that happens all the time. And I said, in order to get by, we have to pretend that that's not going to happen to us. Right. And when we talk about gunshot victims, when it happens to them, there is no more denying that this isn't going to happen. It has just happened and you damn near lost your life. You were pulled back from the brink by complete strangers. And for them, that window opens of, I'm ready for help. Because one of the things we don't talk about, because we do have such a kind of sterile view of gunshot injury, right? It's like life or death. Or then when we talk about people who survive, it's just like, well, they got lucky. They're going to be right back to where they were. And the fact is that that's not true. Most, as you pointed out, most of the people survive and the people who do survive are going to suffer tremendously long-term. But even in the short term, they are experiencing the kind of pain and deprivation that they've never felt before, that they never experienced before. And they don't want that. And not only do they not want it for themselves, they don't want it for the people in their circle of influence. They don't want it for their friends or families who will become entangled in this back and forth and this retaliation. So they look for a way out. And the programs that are in hospitals like ours, where we have 24-7 responders, regardless of what time of night you are wounded, we're going to have somebody there to hold your hand, to comfort you, to talk to you about resources, to try to get you out. Because as you pointed out, it's about being there when that light bulb goes off for them, when they're ready to take advantage of it. Do you think that's because we have a warped view of 
what it's like outside. We either don't think we're going to get shot, or if we do, we'll think it's going to be like the movies. We have a kind of sense of bravado or macho. Yeah, I could take a couple of rounds. What the fuck are you going to do? Yeah, kind of yeah, approach. Yeah. And then you suddenly get that moment like, oh shit, this really hurts. Yeah. This is bad. Yeah. It's interesting. You touch upon the, the kind of thinking behind Cradle to Grave, right? Was we know it's not like they depicted on television and movies. And yet when you compare the kind of heat that we get to the heat that the television and movie industry gets, you would think that we were the ones who were glorifying violence, you know? And for us, we were like, yeah, we should probably tell the truth about what gun violence is because what we hear from patients is that they never imagined that it would be like this. And I remember the first time that I asked a, a patient, is this like you thought it might be? I mean, certainly you must have thought that it could Great happen. Question. He said, I wouldn't wish this upon my own worst enemy. And then that became the thing I heard over and over again. And it's because television has so sterilized the experience of being shot or shooting somebody. And that's the part that we forget about too, is that we depict the shooting of individuals as being this very easy thing to do. I mean, it is, it's five, what, five pounds of pressure on a trigger. And your problem is immediately gone. You, it evaporates, right? I see the same thing sometimes when I work with graduate students. When we do field work, especially when you're going with the police, I have them wear bulletproof vests because for the officers, it's one less thing for them to have to worry about. When they try it on for the first time, because that's the first time they've ever had to explicitly think about what the experience of being shot might be like. And then they're trying it on. I'm looking at them going, yeah, yeah. that vest is only 16 inches by 12. It's yeah. not covering a lot of you, is it? Right. We don't have enough of that almost brutal reality that gives people that level of experience. So your program is really capitalizing on people having that experience at the wrong end of it. Right, right. You know, when we're working with individuals who've been shot, they're going through things that have never even been depicted for them. They've never seen it on television or in movies. They have a tube that has gone up their nose and down the back of their throat and into their abdomen that is draining fluid out of their belly. As a result of having that, they're not going to be able to eat or drink for days or weeks. So we, don't, we never talk about that level of deprivation. Something like one out of seven shooting victims had some level of paralysis. So when we think about paralysis, we think, well, you can't feel some part of your body. The part we don't think about as well is it's, oftentimes it's the opposite of that. Oftentimes the part that's damaged is on fire. The nerves are just sparking and they talk about the pain that can't be gotten to with medicine. They're in excruciating pain. They can't move that part of their body, but they still feel the pain that is there. So all of these are part and parcel of being shot, but we never discuss that. And so when you encounter somebody who's going through this, this is profound experience, and you explain to them that there's a better life on the other side of this, and I can help you get there. It seems funny that that's the case because that would almost be the time I would think that that's, that's what they that, want to hear. At that's that time. the last thing they were anticipating is that there's a better life after yeah. this. Yeah. But I think they're ready for anything now because there's nothing in their life that prepared them for this. I've been surrounded by people my whole life who've been shot. You know, I had two brothers who had been shot. My sister committed suicide with one of my father's guns. I had friends who had been shot and killed. But it wasn't until I began working at the hospital that I saw what people really went through and how awful it was. And it's no wonder that this is the moment that they want to seize. This is the, the wake up call. Going back to the perpetrator, like Cradle to Grave wasn't just meant for potential victims. It really was thinking about the kid who at 18 or 19, because he's been involved in some type of beef in his neighborhood, who thinks that he's going to solve his problems by picking up a gun. We have a responsibility to tell him what he's going to do when he picks up that gun, that he may kill somebody, but that's probably going to happen only one out of every five times somebody's shot. 
What's more than likely going to happen is that he will sentence that individual that he has a beef with because of something that was said on social media. He's going to sentence them to a lifetime of suffering, potentially paralysis, amputations, PTSD, yeah. over something, you know, somebody's talking slick on the interwebs. So we want to reach them before that moment comes so that when they make a decision, at least they're making an informed decision. So you've got these two programs. You've got Cradle to Grave, which is bring kids into the program before they experience right. gun violence, either as on the receiving end or the giving end. And then you also have the intervention program that's 24-7, which right. is as they're in the hospital. Yeah, the Victim Advocates right. Program. Would you consider them both to be hospital-based violence intervention programs? Yeah. Yeah, I think both of these are hospital-based violence intervention programs. It's kind of by default because right. you're in the hospital. Right. But right. what I'm more saying is that what it, you know, when people would do research, this is what they're looking to because they're very different programs, right. Right? right? Cradle to the Grave is an interesting one. That's where I first heard about yeah. the work that you and Amy are doing. Yeah. So with Cradle to Grave, we bring in kids who are usually between the ages of 13 and 18 or 19. And increasingly, we've been asked by adult programs to bring in formerly incarcerated individuals and to tell them about what goes on in the trauma bay. And it's been a profoundly rewarding experience, both in terms of bringing young people and adults in. Because what you see is, you know, these kids get to step in the trauma bay as visitors. And there's nothing more heartbreaking than watching a kid who's been shot coming into the trauma bay begging for his life, realizing that he had no idea what was going to happen when he stepped out of the house that day. And here he is surrounded by strangers. We thought it was important to bring kids in as learners rather than patients. We walked through the trauma bay on the way up here and it's gloriously medically pristine and, you know, everything's covered in plastic and it's in perfect situation, ready to go. But they're not seeing the sort of reality of what it's like when there are five or six people in there just busting a hump trying to keep somebody alive. Yeah, I mean, usually it's probably 10 or 11 people. It's a scrum of professionals who are surrounding that bed and everybody's frantic. And what we try to do as best as we can is recreate the feeling. And so it's interesting. What we do is we occupy this space and I just narrate what happens from moment to moment. And we use the medical record of a kid who was 16 years old when he was shot years ago. When we started the program in 2006, this kid's shooting had happened just a year and a half earlier. And the reason we use this kid's story is his grandmother wanted us to use his experience. The young man ultimately died after being worked on 14 minutes in that trauma bay, but we, in painstaking detail, go through and explain every procedure that happened along the way, everything from... You can almost do it in, like in real time, minute by minute. minute. It literally is minute by minute. You know, when we first kind of walk into that space, you've got kids who they just met me a few minutes earlier and they're wound up and as kids are. And then within five or 10 minutes of being in that space and walking them through the fact that everybody's cutting off his clothes and doctors are putting paper clips on top of his bullet holes so that when they take an x-ray, the bullet holes show up on the x-ray because the holes themselves wouldn't. And to talk about intubating him and, and the, the blood product that he's getting, and then ultimately the fact that they're going to perform a thoracotomy, which is how doctors will oftentimes start a heart by opening up the chest and doing manual cardiac massage. And all of these things now are things that kids are imagining. My ex-wife, who used to work in intensive care and emergency rooms, told me about doing that a few times. <laughs> the first time I heard it was like, are you fucking kidding? Yeah. That's yeah. how it works. And yeah, that's how it works. All the time. And we do a disservice to these kids by letting them think that what they're seeing in movies and videos is really the sum total of that experience. Like, yeah, when the good guy takes a couple of rounds but gets up, keeps running 400 yards down right, the road. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's akin to like showing football highlights on ESPN but not talking about, you know, brain damage from playing football. Like, you, you kind of have to talk about the risks as well. And that's really what we wanted to do. 
Cradle to Graves won a number of awards. Has it been expanded to a number of places? So we've had other hospitals reach out who wanted to replicate it. Some have done it exactly as we've done it, and, and others have kind of taken their own spin and not as well as you know we would like. But for us, we're happy for people to borrow from our experiences. You know, right now we're working with some folks and looking at creating a more immersive experience. And on the trauma side, the trauma program that takes place in the Bay has this long-winded name. The program is called the Trauma Victim Support Advocates Program. It is a mouthful. We call it the Victim Advocates for short. What's in it for the hospital? I mean, one of the things about the American healthcare system is it's a for-profit system. This strikes me as a program that they're supporting that seems to have no benefit to them, if you know what I mean. I don't know, I had to sound horribly cynical. No, no, no. This is a system that, you know, yeah. that records every single intubation, every single cannula, and charges it to an insurance company. Sure. And they're investing you and how many staff you've got? So right now we have five staff under the Victim Advocate Program. We're likely to expand to a total of nine shortly. And we're going to expand over to one of our other sister hospitals. I mean, it's a great thing to do. What is fantastic. And the Council on Criminal Justice called it a promising strategy, which is great. But I'm just trying to figure out why. Do you know what I mean? So, but one of the things you have to understand is trauma ain't a money-making venture. This isn't an elective surgery. This isn't a knee replacement. Many of the people who are being shot, unfortunately, are uninsured, underinsured. So we hemorrhage money at this hospital. But one of the things about this place that I admire is the fact that we say that we're a community hospital. There are folks here who truly take that seriously. There yeah. are folks who, who, like anywhere, say it because it's the right thing to say. But for the most part, the vast majority of people I deal with here believe that and are simply trying to find the answers. Don't get me wrong, I previously lived in Australia and in Britain. When you have nationalized healthcare systems, they have an incentive to reduce the number of people coming into hospitals. And the medical system in the United States doesn't work that way. Yeah. But what I think is great about this, it should be funded by the public purse, right. but it's funded by the system. Yeah, but if you, I mean, even if you took the most cynical view, by reducing the number of individuals who suffer gunshot injuries, we're going to save money. But the truth is, even the people whose opinions politically veer far away from mine, from ours, yeah. believe that it's heartbreaking and it's criminal the way that we accept people being shot day in and day out. There are people that I probably would expect to think, ah, well, they got what they deserved. That's just not the vibe here. It's funny then, isn't it? It's almost like the cradle to grave or the, the intervention program and the trauma unit should almost, should almost be an experience for everybody, yeah. right? Yeah, no, absolutely. And we think about, like, we should, we should be bringing lawmakers in is who we ought to bring in here. Do you feel like there are cases when you really know you've had success? Yeah. I mean, if we're talking about cradle to grave, right? On the prevention side, when I encounter individuals who are now working with kids, but they came through initially because they were a troubled kid and they were in a program, I've had that more times than I can count. And what about in the trauma side? On the back end of it, I'll tell you the thing that happens like in real time, the real time feedback that we get that blows me away sometimes is a family member, sometimes even like the mother of the victim who's died, will turn to the staff and, and say, I, I just want to thank you for being here. Or I had a, a nephew of somebody who had been murdered. You know, he was an adult nephew who turned as we were kind of outside of the family waiting room after the family had been notified of the death of the loved one. And he turned to me and said, I don't know how you do this. But it's hard because it goes back to that vicarious trauma that you talked about, right? It, it gets in your bones. It, it takes a toll on you. Well, you do wonder about, you know, 
Just everybody gets victimized by everything. One incident, how much it ripples through everything else. Um, what we're trying to also do is to lower the temperature. You start to see that retaliation cooking in that space in the hospital, because this is where it all happens. You know, you yeah. hear that your son is being that's killed. A, that's that emotion, yeah. I'm going to avenge you. Yeah. And you, you start seeing those guys having that conversation. And I'm not suggesting that handing the brother of the gunshot victim a bottle of water is going to keep him from wanting to strike back at the individual who hurt his brother. But I think that what is able to happen in that space is some humanity is able to slip in and we're able to have a quiet conversation with them. I wonder if it also does what's, what's so necessary throughout so many of the things that we deal with in, in criminal justice in this whole area, is if you can slow the decision-making, mm -hmm. it improves the decision-making. Right. And I wonder if what you're doing is that. Say, take a breath. Right. Think about the next stage before you just kind of go, dude, we're going to do this for you. Yeah. And, you know, having them talk out loud, you know, walk me through this, you know, tell me about your brother. What would he want you to do? You know, we have the ability to have these conversations in real time with the hope that this is going to reduce the chances that that individual is going to speed out of our parking lot and strike back at the person that harmed his brother. Does it happen in all cases? No. What about the reverse of that? What happens when you see a frequent flyer, a repeat customer come back in through the door? It's interesting. We, we have this idea of that happening all the time. It, it happens. It, it happens but far less often than you'd imagine. But when it does happen, we just lost somebody this week that we had seen last year. And it's hard because I know the story and it doesn't sound like he was caught up really in anything other than being a marked individual. And so there were conversations that were had about, well, you know, this individual was just here and wonder what life he's caught up in. And based on my conversations, but more importantly, Ian's conversations, the advocate that we were talking about, the advocate yeah, that you met. Yeah, I ran into downstairs. Yeah. yeah. I had a much different picture of him. I understood exactly what this was about, that this had nothing to do with the choices that he was making or the life that he was caught up in. It was simply that he had been marked because of something that he actually ultimately had nothing to do with. But once that die was cast, you know, there, there wasn't many ways out for him. I mean, you've seen people with whom I engage that will talk about the fact that this is poor parenting or this is about gangs. They don't which, know shit. Yeah. Well, yeah. No, I, I do love reading you engage <laughs> them. I mean, it's always entertaining because, oh, man, I mean, there's a lot of death in Philadelphia and half of it's you murdering people, <laughs> murdering people on Twitter because you just pull them to pieces. I love it. But, you know, if I'm not pushing back on this narrative then they get to control the conversation, right? And really those loud voices have influence because if nobody's pushing back, then people will assume that, well, maybe they're right yeah. because nobody is pushing back. But this, that can be exhausting too. Oh, can be. But, you know, in some ways, this is my guilty pleasure. You know, the, the thing <laughs> that I do on Twitter. Well, we enjoy it. Yeah, well, thanks. But, you know, really, it, it, it's cathartic. And it's a public service. It is a public service. The voices that are probably most absent from that conversation are those who are, are engaged in that life, who are caught up in it one way or the other. But I have had thousands of conversations with gunshot survivors at night in the quiet room in which they've been weeping because they're unsure about what their next move is or they're lonely or they're scared or they're whatever, but we're having an honest conversation that isn't guided by me hanging a longer prison sentence on them or yeah. trying to flip them or doing anything. It's just, I have nothing to offer them except maybe sometimes some free TV or whatever. And we're, we're having these conversations 
which is why my take on what's happening out there differs significantly from the troll who wants to argue that you know, all the shootings are gang members or this is all about bad parenting. I can't tell you how many times I'm in the room with an individual who's been shot and their room is always filled with family members, including his father, who's sat vigil by the bedside from the moment he came in. We have to have more honest conversations, Jerry, and I appreciate you letting me have this conversation with you. Talking before, you were saying this last year or two has been a, a time to reflect and mm -hmm. think about the next steps. Where do you think that's going to lead you? I've had to think about, you know, part of it is legacy, you know, what, thinking about, what, you know, what happens when I retire, what happens if I drop dead at my desk, then what? It's funny, because I think we're about the same age. Yeah. And there's a part of me going, I can quantify the number of years of working I have left. Yeah. And so now whenever I make decisions to do something, I am implicitly making a decision to not do other things within that right, same time right, frame. Right. It really does make you focus a little bit more. Yeah. You know, so where, we, where I am personally and professionally is thinking about what is going to be left behind and how does this thing keep going without me? There's far more road in my rearview mirror than there is in my windshield. So building systems and building programs that will endure is really where I'm going from here. Spending more time supporting victims of crime in the hospital. We've done a really, as I said before, done a really good job of patching people up and shipping them out that door. We haven't done quite as good a job of making sure that they have what they need to make sure that they don't come back. You may disagree with the policing approaches done in many cases, but I would say one thing that you and police officers have in common is they spend probably more time than anybody else in the criminal justice system appreciating the perspective of victims mm -hmm. because nobody else spends any time with victims of crime. Right, right. And I think that does give you a different perspective. I think it's an important one that we too easily forget. Well, I think one of the things that I lament about where we are now as a society and this divide that exists between community and the police is the lack of space that allows for that kind of exchange so where they can appreciate that. Because I'm not an abolitionist, um, I'm not a defund police kind of guy. But I think that I encounter some, some real terrible cops, some cops that have Me no, too. Yeah, who have no business in that work. But by and large... But tucked away, there are some really good ones. If I'm going to be honest, you know, I'm not, I'm not a holster sniffer. I'm not a bootlicker. I'm not... Holster sniffer's a new one on me. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think it's tucked away. I think that there's a lot of really good dudes out there that are doing their honest best. I think the system is broken. I think it's very hard for them to feel rewarded for the work that they're doing. I see dudes that transport shooting victims and risk their own lives in transporting them here that are covered in the victim's blood that will turn to me when they hear the mom scream and just be like, man, you know, like they get it. They, they understand that. But there's such a, such a barrier now that exists between the community and law enforcement that we've got to find a way to have these conversations. And it can't just be about making cops seem heroic and that's the message we need to give. For many law enforcement officers, that's kind of what they miss is that, you know, when, back when the cop was a hero. I think what's even more important than that is letting cops be seen as human and real and having those honest conversations. Well, I certainly hope and trust that Philadelphia does the right thing and keeps you at the center of those conversations for the foreseeable future. Thanks for spending I some time with me. It. I appreciate it. Thank you, brother. That was episode 45 of Reducing Crime, recorded in Philadelphia in February 2022. 
Links to videos and details of the Cradle to Grave program can be found at reducingcrime.com slash podcast. There you can also find transcripts of this and every episode. New episodes are announced on Twitter at underscore reducing crime, and instructors can also DM me there for a spreadsheet of multiple choice questions for every episode. Be safe, and best of luck. Thank you.